Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. I'm going to bring our Bible readings for today. So they're from the New International Version. The first reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Our next reading is Luke chapter 9, 19, verses 41 to 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he, that is Jesus, wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Thanks, Hilary. Thanks, uh, worship team. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a light to our feet. It helps us to understand you more. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to us by your spirit this morning through the word. May we come, may we leave here people who are changed by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Well, um, I'm not sure what, uh, what comes to mind when you think of, of being blessed. But if you're similar to me, then it means that uh, there's something good has happened to you. You've managed perhaps to get a new car. Blessed. Your kids have finished school, no more school fees. Blessed. You've finished uni, got a job. Blessed. A new baby, blessed. A job promotion with more pay, less hours, more stimulating work, less pressure and closer to home. Blessed. Maybe impossible. (laughs) You wouldn't be alone in thinking that being blessed is really only connected to pleasant and good things. In fact, in recent years on social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook, People have begun labelling photos of, of, uh, of things that they feel blessed about in having or, or in uh, receiving. And they've used the hashtag and the word blessed and they've joined it together. Underneath a photo of a new car, a group of best friends, some of your besties, uh, under a photo of your new dog, even in fact a fat juicy pizza, even someone's got a new camping portable toilet, like a portable toilet you take away from, um, for camps, people have actually labelled them with hashtag blessed. In fact, it's so popular, hashtag blessed, that 141 million posts on Instagram alone 
have actually used this, uh, this signature of hashtag blessed to say, I'm so blessed with these things. That's a lot of people feeling a lot of blessing, isn't it? And it's really good. I think it's actually good to acknowledge when we feel very fortunate and thankful for, for things in our life. But as I read the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not sure that Jesus would actually post the same sort of pictures and tag them with the hashtag blessed if he was actually an Instagram user today. Last week we, uh, we heard Jesus' first beatitude, which was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And if you didn't actually get to hear that sermon or watch it, then I want to encourage you to listen to it. You can go to uh, our, uh, our website and you'll find uh, a link there to YouTube or, or Vimeo, or you can actually even download it as just an audio file to uh, Spotify or iTunes and listen to it. And I encourage you to do that if you want to keep up with this series. But today, as we come to Jesus' second beatitude, you might wonder, well, what's Jesus really talking about here? Because Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who get the best job, or blessed are those who have an easy life and get what they want, or a pizza with lots of salami on it. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Which was surprising, which was as surprising for the people in Jesus' day as it is for you and I as we sit here today. How then should we understand Jesus' statement, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted? Today, people don't usually put the words blessed and mourning in the same sentence. Do they? In order to uh, understand why Jesus links them together, we've got to remember the context in which he's actually talking, the, saying these things. He's actually, remember, he's delivering his manifesto to people, to this great crowd of people. He's telling people all the important principles and values and ethics and attitudes of the kingdom of God that he's actually ushering in. And he's actually telling those people about the characteristics of people who will actually be in that kingdom, who will be part of his movement. We also need to look at some of the key words in this, uh, in this statement, this second statement. The word he uses for mourn, we know generally what this means. It means to feel strong empathy for something that's lost. It is a feeling that someone gets when a partner or a child or a parent has died. But it's not grief. He's not talking about grief. You see, grief is actually something that's usually quite sharp and intense. And then it actually fades with time. Mourning is, is, is a much deeper ache within you for something that you've lost. It's a, it's a long-term sorrow. In fact, in the original language, Jesus uses the word as a continuous, uh, like a, a verb, a continuous tense verb. So what he's actually saying is, blessed are those who can, are continually sorrowful, for they'll be comforted, which sounds contradictory and like a paradox, isn't it? I know what you're thinking, <laughs> Well, if you're thinking like I'm thinking, I'm thinking, wow. Can't wait to do that, Jesus. 
He wants us to mourn though other things. He's not talking about mourning or continually being sorrowful for a deceased loved one. That's not what his focus is this morning. He wants us to mourn other things that are lost and broken. But he wants us to, to mourn those things with the same kind of empathy that we mourn a dearly loved one that we have lost. And so the things that Jesus says we should mourn is sin and brokenness in all forms. And so the reason we're to do this is because when we're mindful of sin and broke and the broken state that we're in, it pushes us towards God and it pushes us to see the forgiveness and the grace that God actually offers you or us. And when we actually experience that forgiveness and grace, we actually experience great comfort as well. This is the opposite, though, of what people generally do today. For some bizarre and twisted reason, people actually don't mourn sin and brokenness. They actually celebrate it. Just go to work on Monday morning and listen to the sort of stories and banter that you might hear at work or at uni or at school or in the locker room. People boast about sexual exploits or how much they drank or about how their friends got wasted on the weekend. And it's kind of strange to boast about those things because they're sort of unedifying and sort of well, they're dehumanising, really. But in many ways, that boasting reflects some of the brokenness of our lives. But it's more than just personal sin and brokenness that Jesus wants his followers to mourn and be mindful of. That was sort of more of the focus of last week's sermon. He also wants us to mourn for the world in which we live because the world is broken and lost. And so today, racism, injustice and corruption are endemic in many countries, including Australia. Sexual exploitation, child abuse, sex trafficking are huge problems and growing problems around the world today. The pornography industry, which is actually central to sexual exploitation, is actually growing each year. It produces an annual revenue worldwide of $97 billion. But brokenness, let's not just think about brokenness as out there at a distance from us or something that happens in people's, the privacy of people's homes while they're looking on the internet. Family violence is also on the rise in our suburbs. The streets of every city in the world, including right here in Mooney Ponds, have become home to the homeless. Today, we're seeing an explosion of mental illness and loneliness in a world that's actually hyper-connected. How does that happen? But it's not just people that are struggling either with brokenness. Our planet is actually experiencing a strain there as well, isn't it? Today, there's environmental degradation. There's deforestation. The oceans are, and the waterways are actually filling up with junk. And climate change is occurring due to our overuse of fossil fuels and other depleting substances. And there's this huge disparity between the rich and the poor, which means that at the same time, some people are feasting while other people are in perpetual famine. 
The Apostle Paul prophetically said that the brokenness of the world is actually not just felt by people. He says that he says that the whole creation is actually groaning under the strain of sin and brokenness and is waiting and longing for redemption. Waiting for the promises for God to fulfill his promises and to 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 redeem the creation itself, which he's doing. So this leads to the question, how then should we respond to the brokenness of the world? Should we distract ourselves and hope that it goes away? Should we hide away as Christians? And from the poll this morning, I didn't see that. And that's great news for us as a church. Because Jesus is saying that we are to mourn for the world because it leads ultimately to us and the world being comforted by him. King David models mourning for the world. In Psalm 119, when he says, he says this, he says, Tears stream down, my, down from my eyes because people do not keep your law. You see, David, though, he mourned. He was mourning for the world, but his mourning for the world was only possible because he first mourned his own sin and his own brokenness. David did some terrible things. He had sex with someone else's wife and got her pregnant. And to top it off, he plotted and killed her husband and tried to cover it up. Doesn't get much worse than that, does it? That's probably right there, the theme of a bestseller. When David was confronted by his own sin, he confessed and received forgiveness. But he continued to mourn this throughout his life. He continued, he, he could have tried to erase the official record of his crimes. Kings and powerful people do that all the time, so it seems. But he didn't. He could have buried his brokenness in the bottle or with other substances and pleasures, but he didn't. He could have uh, he could he, he could have um, got really religious and cloistered himself away to try and ease his guilt, but he didn't. He could have just become hard and cynical, but he didn't. Instead, David mourned his brokenness, and we we see his mourning every time we open the Bible, open the Psalms. You see. He wrote songs and poetry about what he'd done and how it had led him to receive comfort from God in the starkest and darkest of times. And his poems and songs are there for all the world to, to see and read today and they, they've been read by millions of people, billions of people who themselves have been led to seek God's forgiveness and grace and be comforted from the sin and brokenness in their own lives. And so the reason that we are to mourn our sin and brokenness is because it will open our hearts to God's forgiveness and grace, which are actually foundational. They're actually essential for being comforted by God yourself. If you want to know comfort, to be comforted by God, then that's the starting place. But mourning our own sin and brokenness also does something else to us, you see. It, it also enables us to begin to see the world as God does and it actually causes us to desire and want God to transform the world in which we live. 
And that's what God is wanting to do. That's what God is doing. Sadly, though, many of us don't mourn the brokenness of the world. We, we actually withdraw from it. We throw up our hands in the air and we at times try to insulate ourselves from the world. And we wouldn't be alone in this because, in fact, Old Testament prophets also struggled with this. Although they were sort of constantly struggling and pointing out issues, they also struggled with the brokenness of the world themselves. In fact, Jeremiah, he wished he could flee somewhere else at times and perhaps you feel like that yourself as well. He says, At times I wish I had a wilderness hut, a backwards cabin where I could get away from my people and never see them again. They are faithless, feckless bunch. <laughs> Perhaps you feel like that this morning. At many other times, though, Jeremiah was moved to pray and act for his people. And this is one of the reasons why, actually, he's referred to sometimes as the weeping prophet. It's also maybe why, actually, read in the New Testament, why some people actually thought that, that Jesus was actually Jeremiah resurrected because Jesus also weeped a lot for people, wept a lot for people. In fact, as Jesus ent entered Jerusalem on his way to the cross, he wept. But his tears were not for himself. He wasn't afraid of dying. Like David, like Jeremiah, they were actually tears for the world. They were tears for us, for our children, for our neighbours, for people everywhere who live without peace and hope and a knowledge of God. They're tears for you this morning. Friends, it's time for us to weep and mourn for our sin and brokenness as well as for the brokenness of our children, for our relatives, for our neighbours, for our workmates, for the brokenness of our city, for the brokenness of our state, for the brokenness of the world. You see, Jesus' tears were God's tears. And God has been mourning our lost and broken state since Adam and Eve turned from him in the Garden of Eden. But God didn't, God's mourning didn't cause him to turn away or hide. It caused him to act and move towards us, which he's done decisively in and through Jesus. My question is this morning, do you feel God's concern for the world today? Do you mourn and long for the world to be comforted and transformed by God. The Corinthian church didn't initially feel God's concern for their city or for the world. Initially they were filled with self-interest, really concerned only for themselves. But God transformed them. He helped them to, to actually see their own sin and brokenness, which then actually led them to have empathy for their neighbours and it actually caused them to pray and to act and to want to join God in his mission to the world. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul describes what happened this way. And I'm reading from the, from the message. And now, isn't it wonderful, all the ways in which this distress has goaded you closer to God? You are more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. 
looked at from any angle, you've come out of this with a purity of heart. And that is what I was hoping for in the first place when I wrote the letter. Throughout history, when Christians have begun to mourn their own broken state and the broken state of the world, it's caused them to pray and to act and to seek to join God in his mission to the world. An example of this occurred in 18th century Britain when a group of Christians known as the Clapham sect began to mourn the broken state of the world in which they lived. And so their mourning led them to pray and act and as a result a profound social transformation took place in Britain at that time in the lives of people there and also in the lives of many people around the world. And a key figure in this, uh, in this group of Christians was a guy by the name of William Wilberforce. He was a young politician who became known for leading the fight to end the slave trade throughout the British Empire. What's less known about Wilberforce is that his concerns about the slave trade and other social issues actually started after a period of deep reflection. Deep self-reflection. In his twenties, uh, mid-twenties, after living a fairly self-centred existence, he began to reflect deeply on his life. And he went through a period of mourning about his own sin and brokenness. And through this, he experienced an incredible spiritual awakening when he encountered Jesus and encountered Jesus' forgiveness and grace. But this awakening didn't end with just his own transformation. It actually led him to see many of the large problems and issues of his day in a completely different light. He also came to see a different purpose for his life other than just his own pleasure. He came to see that he was, uh, caught, was to tackle some of the great evils of his time. Many of, many of these were, were cruel and dehumanising practices that caused untold pain and suffering on people. And chief amongst those was the slave trade. But bringing an end to the slave trade, can you imagine how hard that would have been? You see, it was endemic. He was actually one of the major income earners for the British Empire. It was where they got their labour from to bring all their commodities to their factories. And it was also a socially acceptable practice amongst people. But Wilberforce and his Christian friends were determined not to rest until it was abolished. And it took him and a group of people, like-minded Christians, these were all Christians, were doing this. Christians were at the heart and centre and the drivers of social change in Britain at that time. And it took them 20 years, it took him 20 years to convince Parliament and to convince society in Britain at that time to bring about change to legislation to abolish the slave trade in Britain. And you think, oh, well, 20 years, that was tough. But, wow. But no, he didn't rest there. In fact, it took another 26 years for that group to continue to to actually uh, protest and actually continue to pressure another 26 years before it was abolished throughout the whole of the British Empire. That's 46 years. And in fact, it only came as Wilberforce 
lay dying on his bed. Just before he died, that, that decision was made. Wilberforce and his friends were also worked tirelessly to see many other people receive justice, including people who swept chimneys at that time in Britain and single mothers. They rallied and petitioned for public education for the poor and began programs to care for orphans and help young offenders to get a new start in life. They helped start parachurch organisations and groups that would support the poor. And they also began a worldwide missionary society, which is still running today, called CMS. And they also started the British and Worldwide Bible Society so that people could begin to have the scriptures in their own language. And they started a society, an anti-slave slavery society, and many, many other groups they started. In fact, Wilberforce was a member of 69 different groups. And although Wilberforce looms large in the face of many of these actions, he wasn't alone. You see, he was part of a group of like-minded Christians who all used their talents, convictions, finances to see millions of people in Britain and around the world learn about the love and grace of God and to experience, actually tangibly experience, God's love and justice and help themselves. One person in this group who used his talents was a guy by the name of Henry Thornton, a merchant banker. Can you imagine? A merchant banker. What would a merchant banker do to help this cause? Well, he was business savvy and he was extremely generous and he used his skills to oversee the financial matters of many of the group's programs and causes. It was costly for him to do that, though. Not just, uh, not just it was costly in time and money. He was so convinced, though, by this calling that he actually gave away six-sevenths of his income before he was married and then after he was married he gave away a third of his income to this cause. Another person in that group was Granville Sharp. He didn't come in with inherited money. It wasn't just the rich and the, the powerful that were part of this group. But he, what he did was he actually used what he had to serve God. He had an incredible mind. And so he worked tirelessly to construct many of the legal arguments that were used by this group to abolish the slave trade. Another person was Hannah Moore. She was actually a successful playwright, poet, and a best-selling author. And she moved in the fashionable and intellectual society circles in London. And after she came to Christ... She worked, she actually sought to win her high, society's, high society friends to Jesus. But she also worked tirelessly for the poor and the underclass in Britain so that they too could experience justice. Her most significant work was as an educator and writer on behalf of the poor. And there are many others, the list is, is long, unnamed people who, like the men and women that I've just mentioned, also mourned their own brokenness and the brokenness in the world, but they also allowed God to move them, to use their talents, to use their skills, to use their money and passions to bring the good news of Jesus and God's comfort and justice 
to people everywhere. Friends, I believe that, uh, that God is calling us, I believe that God is calling many of you to do the same. But the starting place of being a person who bring, brings God's comfort to others, the starting place is to first mourn your own sin and your own brokenness. Paul said that this is what transformed the Corinthian church. You see, when they began to see themselves as they truly were, it actually brought them closer to God. Paul said that their mourning made them more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. And that is what God wants to do in your life today. You can't do that without, you can't do what these people did without God. You can't do what those things without the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life because you can't generate that yourself. You can't sustain it. You need a source, a power source to do that and only God can give you that this morning. If you're trying to do these things in your own source, your own power strength in this morning, I want to encourage you to stop and seek power from the only source that can give you that, which is Jesus. And if this morning you recognise that you actually lack concern, if you feel hard, if you're not sensitive for people's problems and pain, if you don't feel moved by the situation of the world, if you don't feel compelled to act and pray, then today I want to encourage you, I want to, I want to plead with you to ask God to refresh you and to awaken you so that you can see the world as he does and so that you can join him, so that we can join him in his mission to the world. Like the Corinthians and also William Wilberforce and that group of Christians known as the Clapham sect, we also need to mourn for our community and the world. We need to ask God to show us what he wants us to focus on and how we are to respond and act in our community as well as to the world at large. You see, today the issues are different, but no less dehumanising or destructive. Ultimately, our hope is in God's complete re restoration of, of the world and us and his comfort. And this will only occur when Jesus comes again and dwells with us. In fact, in Revelation 21.4 it says, that at that time, the time is coming when ultimate comfort will come. At that time, there will be no more tears and there will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain for those things that you mourn. But as we wait for that day which is coming, that's going to be a great day, but as we wait for that day, we are through prayer, we need to seek to know how we as a church are going to become involved and how, how God is going to, how we're going to use the talents that God has given us, the skills that God has given you, the money that God has given you and the passion that God has given you. We've got to ask the question, how are we going to use those things to see people entering into God's kingdom so that their lives can be transformed as well? Friends, as the band comes up to lead us in our last song, 
which is build my life. I want to encourage you to make this song a prayer this morning, a prayer that allows God to speak to you, a prayer that you actually carry with you into the week. You see, as we sing the words of this song, there are some big words in there, some powerful sentences about living for God. Let us ask God to to give us his heart for the world. Let's ask God as we sing and reflect to motivate us to use our skills, our talents, our money for his glory and for him to empower us to love those who are lost and broken in our community today so that they can be truly comforted and blessed. Let's do that together as we sing. Thank you.